This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not and, as um, simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more know, doors. The show is called The deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Sports, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Paul Nepper, and today we'll be talking to Bradford Pearson about his book, The Eagles of Heart Mountain, a true story of football, incarceration, and resistance in World War II America. Bradford has written for several publications, including the New York Times, Time, and Esquire. The Eagles of Heart Mountain is his first book. Bradford, or Brad, we'll go with Brad. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Paul. I really appreciate it. Sure. Thanks for coming on. Um, as I told you before we came on, I, the, the book was excellent. I mean, I, I think anybody who reads it will. It, it's a history lesson. It's a book about sports. Um, you learn a great deal from it. And um, I think anybody who reads it will be blown away by the research and work that you put into it. So um, it's great to have you on. Uh, I wonder if you could start off by telling our listeners a little bit about yourself. Sure. So uh, I grew up in Hyde Park, New York, which closer to the book will realize is also the same hometown as Franklin Delano Roosevelt, uh, who's one of the main reasons that this book exists for bad reasons. Um, And then after that, I worked in community newspapers for a while and then made my way to Dallas with my wife in early in 2010. And then I got into magazine writing. I worked for D Magazine, the city magazine in Dallas for a bit, and then eventually became the features editor at Southwest's in-flight magazine. Did that for a few years until I started doing the book project full-time, which was in 2018. All right. Um, So, of course, this book uh, for our listeners is about the the incarceration of Japanese Americans during World War II, Um, and we will get into that word incarceration later on. Um, but first, I want to ask you, um, how are the, the Nikkei, and when I say Nikkei, of course, referring to the people, um, people who emigrated to the United States from Japan and their descendants, how are those people treated in the United States and on the West Coast specifically prior to Pearl Harbor, the attack on Pearl Harbor? Yeah, it's a great question because I think it gets at a lot of what I wanted to do in this book was to show that Pearl Harbor was just sort of this final event in the long, decades-long attempt by people on the West Coast to remove Japanese Americans from cities, farms, ranches, 
pretty much everything. So Japanese were treated as second-class citizens. Japanese immigrants weren't allowed to become American citizens until the 1950s. So you had this whole generation of folks who were completely disenfranchised politically and socially. Um, and, and most of them, like you mentioned, really lived on the West Coast. So California, Washington, Oregon, and Hawaii had the had the largest population outside of Los Angeles County. Um, and they were treated terribly, uh, uh, you know, but it was, there was one thing that they showed in the decades before Pearl Harbor was that they were just going to outwork everybody else on the West Coast. So when they first showed up, they were laborers and then tenant farmers, and then eventually basically became the uh, driving agricultural force on the West Coast, taking over all sorts of industries, whether it was the flour industry or lettuce or berries, depending on where you were on the West Coast. Uh, a lot of different industries were completely dominated by Japanese farmers and then their descendants from about 1910 until the war. And then uh, Pearl Harbor, when everyone got sent to the camp, in a lot of ways, the camps were obviously sort of the facade was that the camps were in uh, for reasons of national security. But it was basically the culmination of all these efforts from ranchers, farmers, and a lot of racist organizations, including the American Legion, that have been trying for decades to remove Japanese Americans from their seat of agricultural power on the West Coast. Right. So as you know, you touched on, you, you allude to the fact that they were put in, in camps for ostensibly for reasons of national security, but in, in reality, um, there was a lot more behind that. Um, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what... Um, what studies were done with the government, with the military, et cetera? Um, what were the findings as to whether the Japanese people on the West Coast were actually a threat to national security? Yeah. So uh, for years before Pearl Harbor, the various military intelligence groups, the, the FBI, naval intelligence, all sorts of different groups had been studying the Japanese and Japanese American community, specifically in, in Southern California, which at that point had become sort of the locus of Japanese American life. Los Angeles, after the 1906 earthquake in San Francisco, Japanese American life sort of forever shifted to Los Angeles. So for decades before that, there had been spies within the community. And then there had been also there had been folks that were very open, folks, naval intelligence officers who would live in Little Tokyo and in Los Angeles and just everybody in the community knew who they were and why they were there. And after Pearl Harbor and even before Pearl Harbor, there were a few reports that came through that made their way all the way to the White House that essentially said, look, you're going to have no trouble here with the Japanese American community, even if there are some folks who may have some loyalty to Japan they're going to be quiet. They're not going to raise a fuss. They're not going to, there, there's no spies here. There's no uh, eminent threat of danger. No one is going to bomb any military installations or take out a dam or do any of the things that white Americans assumed that the Japanese and the Nikkei on the West Coast were going to do. And, but, but there, all these intelligence reports were ignored or either ignored or just sort of dismissed as not being accurate, which, which I mean, they they weren't running them. They weren't, you know, quick intelligence reports. It wasn't like they spent a day in the community. They had spent literally decades spying on on Japanese and Japanese Americans, and they 
uh, I don't know. Uh, basically, the army wanted to do one thing, which is remove Japanese from the West Coast. And they ignored every red flag that said they didn't have to do it and just went ahead and did it because they were racists. Right. Um, and uh, as far as, you know, you mentioned all these reports and some of them made their way up to the White House. But of course, uh, President, President uh, Roosevelt issued Executive Order 9066. Um, I wonder if you could talk about that order a little bit and, you know, kind of uh, the scope of it, the scale of it, you know, how many people were involved, um, where they were moved, that, those type of things. Sure. Um, so we're actually recording this on the 79th anniversary of Executive Order 9066. So I wish I, I wish I could say I planned that, but I, I did. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, so Executive Order 9066 was written mostly by a guy named Carl Benditson, who grew up in Washington State and sort of climbed through the ranks pretty quickly in the army and just hated Japanese. Americans. So uh, what 9066 did was sort of broadly allowed different military commanders around the country to apply the order how they saw fit. So it, it was broadly written enough to allow uh, different military commanders, whether on the West Coast or in the South or in the Pacific or even in the Northeast, to view their populace and remove anyone from that military zone that they deemed to be a threat. So, but it was, you know, it, 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 the word Japanese is never written once in Executive Order 9066. It was, but it was still written with the express desire to remove Japanese Americans and their ancestors from um, the four states across the West. So when that came through in February, after that, you know, every military commander was allowed to do with it as they please. So. If you look at even the military commanders in Hawaii, they chose not to remove any Japanese Americans. And the same existed in, in the East and pretty much everywhere except the West Coast. So then the West Coast military commanders basically just said, okay, we've got to figure out what we're going to do. We're going to remove all everyone of Japanese descent. So that could be, you, you could be one-eighth Japanese, you could be one-sixteenth Japanese. One of the things in the book that was the hardest part for me to write was that the military went into orphanages up and down the West Coast. They went into orphanages in Los Angeles and, and San Francisco and found any kid that had um, Japanese-American, Japanese blood and sent them to camp. So there were certain camps um, that had areas that were just orphan children with Japanese blood. And, um, you know, obviously that's that's difficult to to hear in general, but also my one set of grandparents met an orphanage in Queens. Uh, so I know, you know, what my, my family wouldn't be who it is and it wouldn't be a family if it wasn't for uh, my two grandparents meeting in this orphanage. So the idea that these kids were kind of ripped out of an orphanage and sent to a camp for a year when they were six or four or whatever it is, was personally, it was, it was the one part of the story that I really connected to. Uh, but then, you know, sort of, sort of jumped off the track there for a bit, but, um, yeah, so then basically the executive order 9066 allowed for the removal of 120,000 Japanese and Japanese Americans from the West coast. And then they were sent first to, to temporary camps, 
many of them in California, and then sent to more permanent camps across the West. So in Wyoming, Colorado, Idaho, California, Arizona, um, even as far east, there were two camps in Arkansas. And they were pretty much every piece of land that the camps were built on was had been passed over for centuries by every other settler. So whether it was in Wyoming, where it would get to negative 30 in the middle of the winter, or there were swamps in Arizona, in, um, Arkansas, or the camps in Arizona would get up to 120 degrees in the summer. They were just the most inhospitable pieces of America that you can imagine. And, you know, the majority of these folks had lived in Southern California for their whole lives. So they were used to 70 degree days. Uh, and then, you know, there was one piece of research that I, I really wanted to do for the book was the main characters in this book are mostly teenagers when they go to camp. So I wanted to see the, you know, and a lot of them were from LA County. So about a month after the camp opens in Wyoming, the Heart Mountain camp opens in Wyoming, it, it snows for the first time. Uh, and I went back through and checked all the weather reports from Southern California and had never snowed in any of these kids' lives. And then less than three weeks after they're in camp in Wyoming, they see snow, then it freezes and nobody has coats, you know, nobody has a pea coat or nobody has a wool coat. And, uh, you know, we're getting ahead of ourselves a little bit, but um, that's the, that's the the main gist behind nine zero six six and and how it affected Japanese American life. Yeah, and and one of the fascinating parts of the book for me is, um, of course, Pre- President Roosevelt's role in, of course, he issued the executive order. You know, his his role in the policy, um, because you know he's widely widely revered and regarded as one of the greatest presidents in U.S. history, and and. I think rightfully so for a lot of, you know, a lot of reasons. Um, But this is obviously a major blight on his record. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about, about his feelings towards, towards uh, Japanese Americans and, uh, you know, towards incarcerating them in general. Yeah. So, um, you know, like I said, at the top, I grew up in the same town that FDR is from. So I went to FDR high school. My mascot was the president's uh, <laughs> FDR was a huge part of my life for my entire life growing up, even just through osmosis of being in this town. And then, so part of the driving force behind writing this book for me was really sort of correcting my own vision of, of who Roosevelt was and, and sort of trying to set the record straight um, as someone who really does admire a lot of his other policies, especially when it came to the New Deal, I think that, like you said, this is a real blight on his record. And he, there was no reason to do this other than sort of the expediency. And there were a lot of forces pushing on him to do it. And, you know, even forces within his own house, you know, Eleanor Roosevelt would talk to him and say, like, you don't like, why are you doing this? And she was completely blindsided when he signed the executive order. It was one of the first times in their marriage that he didn't consult her on uh, a major public policy decision. And their marriage really never recovered from that. You know, after that, Eleanor Roosevelt's biographer has said that their relationship was never the same after she felt blindsided by 9066. And it got to the point where she eventually kind of forced his hand and said, I want to visit one of these camps. And this was a couple of years after, after the camps opened. And eventually, he, you know, he allowed her to do it. And, and Eleanor visited the Gila River camp in Arizona and really became a voice for Japanese Americans and, and helped them in terms of um, 
making sure financially that they're a little bit more stabilized than they could have been getting certain things for the camps that otherwise might not have um, otherwise might not have happened. But uh, like you said, you know, this is a really dark mark on Roosevelt's legacy and something that, you know, there's there's a very small part in the book that hopefully doesn't give too much away. But when they're considering closing the camps in 1944, Roosevelt, you know, pretty much right after they opened the camps, they realized that the the military necessity of it was close to zero, that there was the threat of a Japanese attack on the West Coast had diminished greatly. And pretty much right after they opened, the camps could have and should have closed. But Roosevelt kept them open through 44 and then closed them right after he won re-election in 44. So he actively decided to keep the camps open because he didn't want the political blowback of closing the camps before he won re-election, which, you know, is, we talk about black marks on people's careers and that one to me just sort of stands out as just unnecessarily cruel and you know people died in those camps a thousand miles away from their house in those months when they should have been home in la or san diego or san francisco with their loved ones but instead they died in a prison camp in wyoming and that uh that always really sticks with me when i think about roosevelt's legacy yeah um I want to talk about language for a little bit, and, and you addressed this right at the outset of the book, um, how important language is in this specific in- instance. Um, you know, we always were always taught about the, the, the situation with Japanese Japanese people in World War II is we, we were always given the term Japanese internment. That, that's that's the wide, widely used term. Um, but you made a point of using incarceration um, and you use words like concentration camp and camp. Um, and it's a. Can you talk a little bit about, about that, the importance of words in this in this instance? Sure. Yeah. And that was something that when I first started working on this project, I, I wasn't aware of. You know, I would use the terms like internment uh, and even the, 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 the former, the, excuse me, the formal titles of the camps are relocation centers. And when I started doing more and more research and getting more involved and more connected with the Japanese American community, I really wanted to use the terminology that they're using. You know, this isn't a community that I'm a part of. I'm not Japanese American. I'm white, you know, through and through. And uh, so for me, it was really important to make sure that I was using the terminology that the community wanted to be used in the years that I was writing this. And for them, the term internment it's kind of a long explanation, but it, there's a legal definition of what internment technically is as it comes to you know, enemy aliens and how people are being held from a legal standpoint. And the term internment camp was only used in retrospect. You know, Even when the camps were open, someone like Roosevelt was calling them concentration camps. It wasn't until the 50s that all of these ideas of what Japanese American incarceration was, they kind of got all smushed together into this idea of a quote internment camp. And a lot of that was because the term concentration camp sort of became synonymous with extermination camps, understandably, uh, after what happened in Europe during the war. Uh, But for me, you know, like I said, at at the outset, I used the term concentration camp. And then I explained that this isn't to be used as a way to conflate or compare the two kinds of camps, the camp, the the death camps that happened in Europe or these camps. And the Japanese American community doesn't 
believe that those two things should be compared either. That's not um, that's not the reason that they choose this and use this terminology. But for me, like I said, it was just really important to make sure that I was using the terminology that the community uses um, as somebody from outside the community. So in the book, of course, you as as you alluded to, there were several camps throughout the country, um, but you you f- focus the story on uh, on one camp in particular um, at Heart Mountain in in uh, Wyoming. Um, you touched on it a little bit, but I wonder if you could expand a little bit on what life was like at at that camp. Yeah, so Heart Mountain is in northwest Wyoming. It's in an area of the state called the Bighorn Basin, which for centuries and millennia had never had uh, permanent settlements. It was so inhospitable to to human life that uh, even sort of nomadic tribes were like, we can't we can't stick around here. Uh, so it, it's it's really just it, it's a really hard place to live. Um, there's very few communities there even to this day. Um, the towns of Cody and Powell are, are, are nearby, but they're, they're not very large communities. Um, and then they, they built the camp right in between the two of them on this sort of desolate highway in between all of these mountain ranges. And it's just, just scrub brush and, and snakes and all kinds of things that you expect when you think about what Wyoming looks like in your mind. Uh, whatever you think Wyoming looks like in your mind, that's exactly accurate uh, to describe what Heart Mountain was. It was, um, you know, once they removed all the the sort of the scrub brush and everything, they didn't realize that that was exactly what was keeping all the dirt and dust in the ground. So as soon as they removed all that, there'd be windstorms where you couldn't see 15 or 20 feet in front of you. The temperatures would drop to negative 20. Even if it didn't get a lot of snow because the wind, the snow drifts could bury whole houses. And when they first opened the, ha- the uh, camp, when they built the barracks, the barracks each were constructed in about an hour, and they were constructed with green wood, which meant that even in the weeks that between the barracks being built and people moving into them, the wood shrank uh, because it was new and fresh. So there were these huge gaps in between all the boards that when the incarcerated had arrived at the camp, they had to stuff with newspaper and pieces of old Sears robot catalogs. Uh, especially that first fall, things were really rough. Uh, the, the, the food supply was really low and what food there was were foods that were not eaten by typical Japanese and Japanese Americans. So it was powdered milk, it was hot dogs, it was a lot of potatoes. There was a lot of things that the average Japanese American in early 1940s would have not crossed their diet, no matter how Americanized their family had been, which, you know, one of the main characters, Babe Namura, grew up in Hollywood. Los Angeles. So, you know, if, if this diet even seemed bad for them, you know, you think about some of the folks in the farming communities who were still living uh, a, a very, quote, you know, Japanese lifestyles in, in these farming communities. But it was just, it, it was incredibly desolate. There was very little in terms of, especially that first fall, in terms of things to do. And, you know, everyone was trying to make the best of a situation that, uh, with no help from the government in terms of improving their lives. Right. <clears throat> and what role did sports and really football in particular, which you focus on, but sports in general play in the lives of the people at Heart Mountain? Yeah. So that first fall, when things were really bad, one of the first things that the, they did at the camp was the incarcerates 
clear an entire field and built a baseball diamond. And after that, they built a football field and then they built some sumo wrestling pits. And they sort of viewed sports as one way to still live their lives and find some sort of joy within this barbed wire. And, you know, a, a lot of times what we view as what, what we see as what we think of when it comes to Japanese American athletes is, is, is baseball. And, and that was very popular at Heart Mountain. But football really sort of took the camp by storm and they had leagues for young men, high schoolers, middle schoolers, everyone up through their 20s and 30s. They had elementary school leagues and it just became this sport that people would just build, you know, sort of neighborhood teams because there were, there were 11,000 people at, camp, at Heart Mountain. So as soon as it opened, it became the third largest city in the state of Wyoming. And so you had neighborhoods and you had teams of folks who grew up in San Jose together. You had teams of folks who grew up in LA or Hollywood or San Gabriel Valley. And then that sort of rolled into, they started thinking, hey, what are we going to do with all of these high school kids? Like we have nothing for them to do. They're out in the middle of nowhere and all they're going to do is get in trouble. So that's when the high school started, uh, the high school administration started working and trying to figure out how they could get high school sports and how they could get a schedule with neighbor uh, neighboring high schools. So at the beginning, that just started with the first year. They had a, a few basketball games with local high schools, which they just got completely creamed. Uh, and a lot of that's because they didn't have a basketball court at camp, so they couldn't practice. Um, any practice they did have, they would just play out on dirt in the middle of the winter in Wyoming. Um, but then, you know, as as you said, the book focuses mostly on this football team. And that happened. The the Eagles first season was in the fall of 1943. So that, yeah. And, you know, as someone reading the book, you, you end up, you know, you're cheering for these kids, right? You're cheering hard for because of all they've been through, the, the difficulty of their lives, the, the unfairness of it all. Um, and then and then and then the underdog status, right? Because the the you do a great job of painting a picture in the book of, of what of the makeup of this team, this high school football team. But really, I mean, talk a little bit about the team and, and the experience of the players and how the team came together. Yeah, so that was really fascinating for me because so the to back up a little bit, I found the story years ago. I was on a, a, a reporting trip in Yellowstone and I visited the Heart Mountain Interpretive Center. And there was one very small part of the display that said, oh, you know, at this camp, there's a high school football team and not to give too much away, but they were, I'll I'll just summarize and say the display said they were very good. Um, But when I started doing the research on it, I realized that, uh, so the first day of tryouts, 40 kids show up in the fall of 1943. And out of those 40 kids, only three of them had ever played high school football before. So you have a situation where basically any teenage boy who had an ounce of athletic potential just sort of showed up at this practice and said, okay, I guess I'll learn how to play football now. So you had kids who were baseball players who were shortstops, you had track stars, you had pole vaulters, you had all kinds of people that were showing up and just said, there's nothing else for us to do here. We're 16, 17 years old. Let's, I guess, start a football team. So, um, you know, like I said, they had three players and they were really aided in the first season, especially by this player I mentioned earlier, Babe Namora, who was, before he got sent to camp, was the starting running back for Hollywood High School in Los Angeles and 
had really grown up in the Japanese American sports scene and the Nisei Athletic Union throughout Los Angeles. And even as a, a 15 year old and 16 year old was really dominating people who were five, 10 years older than him in baseball, basketball, softball. And then he eventually sort of said, okay, I need to, uh, I feel like I need to play football now to sort of get in and, you know, I guess sort of put a final jewel in his, his crown. And that's when he dominated uh, the Hollywood JV team. And then the season before everyone got sent to camp, he was a starting running back at Hollywood. So the the first season of the Eagles, Babe was really the driving force in terms of their their victories and why they were so good. And there, there, there was Babe was a big part of that, but it was also the the coaching staff sort of realized that okay, what are we going to do? We have a bunch of players who are basically like 140 pounds. We're playing a bunch of teams from Wyoming and Montana whose players are who grow up, you know, these huge white kids that grow up on farms and and sugar beet farms. So how are we going to try to win these games? And basically they just created an offensive scheme that was just quicker than everybody else. They, they played, you know, that the term didn't exist at the time, but they played this hurry up offense where they would just try to get the ball off as quickly as they could. They used a lot of end arounds. They used a lot of trick plays and because of their size, because they're so much smaller than all of their opponents, they're also able to, you know, everyone's playing both sides of the ball then. So they're able to not be as tired. They were in much better physical shape than a lot of these high school teams that they were playing. They're also able to break through the defensive line or the offensive line and, and get to the quarterback or, or get through in a way that uh, I think would have been more difficult if the players had been bigger. And which when I was doing the research, really, you know, like you said, there's this underdog story because of what they're going through. But just because you know, from decades of, and I had to sort of find a way to write this delicately in the book, but, um, you know, Japanese American cuisine at that point hadn't incorporated a lot of dairy, hadn't incorporated a lot of meat. So if you look at that size, the average size of uh, a, a, Jap a person of Japanese descent in the United States in the early part of the 20th century, they were significantly smaller than the average white person. And that's that's changed a lot now because of everyone's diets have sort of become more quote Americanized in terms of meat and dairy. But then you just had you had players who were playing that were the set, the starting center for the Eagles was 120 pounds. <laughs> yeah, I, I, which, which when you think about now, like it's not hard to imagine a center or a nose guard or something in the NFL playing at almost three times that weight. Yeah. That's crazy. No, I, I loved it. I loved, I lo you know, I loved reading and you have these, this ragtag bunch of kids who are, you know, five foot four, 130 pounds and with, you know, relatively no football experience and they're just kind of thrown out there on the field and they're wearing, uh, you know, as you described the, the, they're wearing like cardboard uh, padding that they created themselves and, and, and I'm reading this, and they're winning. Like they're winning games. I'm like, what's going on here? Yeah, it was they're not fantastic. Only, they're, not only, they're not only. Yeah, and that's the thing. Like, it's an interesting <laughs> story, no matter what. But once you realize that they are really, really good, and then you know, at least the entire first season, nobody even scores on them. Right. So they're 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 playing both sides of the ball really well. They're not even just getting lucky. I think, uh, you know, there's the second game they play. They win by like almost 30 points. And it's just, 
like you said, you sort of, I mean, I, I wrote the book, so uh, I am obviously I sort of have a rooting interest in, in the team. But when I was going through and doing the research, you fi- I would find myself every week when I would go to, the, to find out information about the next game being like, okay, how are they going to, and knowing what the scores are, knowing what the results are, but going back and trying to figure out how they actually pulled it off, I would go through, and a lot of a lot of that research came from at the camp itself. There was a, a weekly newspaper called the Heart Mountain Sentinel, right. so I was able to patch together these game reports. Um, and that's where all the detail for all the games comes from. Is is a combination between the Heart Mountain Sentinel and there was also a high school newspaper at the camp. So I was able to use those two, which. <laughs> despite everything, had really, really robust sports section staffs. So they would have reporters who would just do basically like full play-by-play reports of, of the games and the scoring drives. So that's how I was able to recreate all of these. Because a lot of people have asked, like, how do you know? I, I was just about to get to that. Because yeah, we like, get into the football, yeah. Like, how do you know all of this? And, and it's because, like you said, at the like you Oh, sorry. It's okay. Sorry. Sorry about that. Um, you know, it's one of those things where they had this really robust staff, which allowed uh, them to have uh, the heart mount set all every week that there was a football game, they would have uh, a report from last week's game. They would have a, a preview of the upcoming week's game. They'd have box scores. They'd have full lineups. And then they had a column. So the columnist gave me a lot of insight as to how the team played and sort of the the little notes that you see without it, whether it's a, a coach's comment or um, just sort of h- how many fans were at the game uh, because, you know, pretty early on in, in the, in the, the writing for the, the football sections, you know, there's, there were five, I read that there were 5,000 people lining the field of this, of these games, which I mean, even as an opposing team coming into the camp to play, I mean, 5,000 fans, even for a high school game in Wyoming now would be unheard of, you know, like, like that, that's a a ton of people. Um, So they had this, the the, the team had this great home field advantage, despite the fact that that home field advantage meant that they were behind barbed wire and on this terrible field covered in rocks. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Yeah, I'm. I'm so glad you touched on the research because I, I was certainly going to ask that. Um, and along those lines, because that that certainly jumped. I mean, the research, as I as I said already, the research for this is obviously extremely thorough and and very well done. And and um, but the the football games in particular was was fascinating to get. It it was as if I was reading a contemporary game recap, you know, from a, a game last night. I mean, it was really incredible. Yeah, um, a lot of and a lot of that was just you know, like I said, you know, that was the Heart Mountain Sentinel staff. The the, the editor of the paper went on to he was a newspaper man before the war, and then he went on to be an editor at the Des Moines Register and the Denver Post. So like he had a very out of all the camp's newspapers, it was by far the most professional. There were some points where they had 
six or eight staffers doing uh, a, a weekly 10-page newspaper. So there were reporters that were reporting on different parts of the camp staff, uh, you know, aspects of camp life. And I would have never been able to do the book if those sports stories hadn't existed. And I was just sort of based in, based on, you know, different, uh, uh, just seeing a, a score wouldn't have been able to do it. And there's yeah. also, there's also, um, there's an incredible website that a guy named Patrick Schmidt put together uh, in Wyoming called wyomingfootball.com. And he has basically created this incredible database of every Wyoming football game from the beginning of Wyoming football in, wow. in the, uh, you know, at, at, at the very beginning of the 20th century through now. So when I see, you know, whenever in the book you see facts about uh, opposing teams' games or what scores were, or whether you know the Eagles have put up more points than anybody had in the in the in in the state in X number of years, that's because Patrick has put in this work, and it, it's really I, I've never found a website like it in another state, and and he's done this on his own and with some folks from across the state pulling through old newspaper clippings from you know a hundred years ago to figure out box scores and who was coaching and all this. It's, it's a really incredible resource that the book would have been much worse without it. Wow. Were you able to, to speak with anybody who'd been in the camps? Is there, is there anyone still around or, or. Yeah. Um, so I was able to, so Babe Namora and George Yoshinaga are, are two of the main characters in the book. Right. So I was able to speak with, George's kids who weren't in the camp, but then I was able to speak with Babe's widow, who they actually met in camp and then got married after camp. So she was able to give me a lot of insight. And then there were a lot of people that I interviewed that, so some of the other players, widows or siblings that were in camp with them. So I was able to speak with Stanley Gawa, who's one of the other main characters who originally right. grew, up, grew up in Hawaii. Uh, I was able to speak with his sister. I was able to speak with Mas Okamachi, who the second season was one of the team captains. I spoke with his wife, who they also met in camp. And she really, her name's Bunny Okamachi, and she's great. She really helped unlock a lot of the parts of the book that I write about what teenage life was like in the camp and what it was like to just be, you know, 17 years old at this camp, whether it was the high school dances or people making, you know, bootleg liquor out of raisins uh, and sneaking into, <laughs> sneaking into the punch. Um, so, you know, things like that, I was able to, and, and I was able to speak with one living player, Kichi Ikeda, which was really incredible. And it was really helped me sort of, you know, emotionally, like, again, like I, I'm not a Japanese American man. So being able to speak with one of these players, despite the fact that he's in his nineties and was the only living player I was able to speak with really helped me uh, fully realize, like, you know, this isn't my story. I need to tell this story well for, for Kichi and for Babe's family and for Horse's family and for Stan's family, uh, because these are the people that are, you know, have given me access and have given me the honor of being able to tell their family story in a lot of cases for, for the first time. Uh, so I took that very seriously. And I think, you know, hopefully it comes through in, in, in the research because that was one thing that I really wanted to, you know, I didn't, uh, I, I really didn't want people to say like, oh yeah, it was, it was pretty good, but I feel like I could have used more research or something like that. You know, no, I, I, don't, I don't think I can assure you nobody's saying that. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, so we talked about that first season, uh, 
the first football season. And then, of course, between the first and second season, um, there were a lot of changes at the camp. And I would say, you know, the kind of division within the camp over um, political issues, over, 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 you know, people's uh, how people viewed whether they should re, uh, serve the U.S. military. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what what went on in between those two seasons in a way. Yeah, so that was um, – I'm glad you brought that up because for me, I, I wanted to try to use the Eagles team as a way to tell the story of what it was like to to be in this camp and to be not only in this camp but as, as a teenager in this camp and what that was like. And while these teenage boys were also playing football, the U.S. government had also reinstated the draft for Japanese-Americans. So – these teenage boys were also, you know, going to football practice and then having to decide, okay, my family is currently behind barbed wire. I am behind barbed wire. I am a loyal American, but is this a country right now that I want to fight for while they're not giving me the opportunity, you know, to be a whole American? And that sort of divided the team in a lot of ways in that there were some players who decided, oh, of course, like I'm going to sign up for the draft or that's not for, you know, I'm going to sign up for my physical, attend my physical. And, you know, if they send me to the heel of Italy to, to fight, I'm, that's where I'm going to go. And I'm going to do that because I'm a loyal American. But there were other people who said, I, because I'm a loyal American, I would like to have my citizenship status clarified. I would like my family's citizenship status to be clarified, you know, because a lot of times what they were being asked to do was go fight a war and then w- w- with no reassurance as to what would happen if, say, they got set, if they were allowed to go on leave, would they be able to, would they be sent back to camp? Or, you know, and while they were fighting this war, were their, would their families still be held behind barbed wire? If they were loyal enough to fight this war, why are they not? deemed loyal enough by the American government to live freely at their homes on the West Coast. Um, so it's the the story, the, the way the book lines up chronologically, it kind of, you know, we go from a football season and then the start of the draft resistance movement. And then in the second season, the two sort of overlap in a way that you see what all of these players are having to deal with all at the same time while and you know the, the the draft resistance movement at Heart Mountain was the the biggest and most concerted out of all of the camps, and dozens of these guys end up not dozens of the Eagles, but dozens of men in the camp end up getting charged and convicted of draft resistance and sent to federal prison. So, like you said, this was causing this huge schism at the camp. While you know the the football team is is blowing teams out of the water at the same time. The other headline, it's like the headlines of the sports section are Eagles win again. And the headlines of the rest of the paper are, you know, largest mass trial in Wyoming history held today in Cheyenne for 63 draft resistors. So it was, you know, that summer and into that fall at camp was a really interesting time um, because a lot of people had to make uh, decisions for for not only for themselves, but but for their families and, and that affected how their families were viewed in camp and then after the war. Yeah. And, and once again, in spite of all this, in spite of um, the division within the camp, within the team, losing players to the war effort, losing players to uh, graduation, like Babe, for example, is no mm-hmm. longer on the team. He came back and coached, but he was no longer on the team. Um, 
some guys were leaving to to on on work leave to go to certain areas and and still in spite of all of this they were fantastic they were they were, they were a dominant football team again it's just remarkable yeah. yeah it's really incredible and it's you know it just sort of shows that they had built this system that allowed them to sort of change players in and out really quickly and and, and that was something they did a lot more in the second season than the first season where they were just swapping out backs and into different roles. So they would switch into someone in a throwing role and then it put someone in a running role. And then I think that that second season, they relied a lot on confusing their opponents more. Uh, and it showed in the scores, you know, the, the, the game that they played against Carbon County that second season, I can't recall the score off the top of my head, but it was the most points scored in Wyoming history in years. And it would be a record that wasn't touched for a long time. And you know, there were teams that were pulling their games off the schedule because they didn't want to lose to the Eagles. So you had the nearby high schools and, and Cody and Powell refused to play the Eagles, even though it was, a you know, literally 10 miles down the road, which right. in Wyoming is like next door neighbors. Uh, so and, and that was the thing. The first season, these teams would would put the Eagles on and just think to themselves like, oh, we'll get a quick, easy win and, you know, it'll pad our schedule and then they got the doors beaten off of them. And then the second season, it was harder for them to schedule these teams because everyone realized that the Eagles were so good they didn't want to lose to a team from a camp. Uh, so it, it was a really, you know, I, I like the second season a lot because, like you said, they lose their star player, you know, the, by far a, a person who they say, a lot of folks say is the best Nisei athlete of all time. They lose him. And then they still end up being just as good because these other players just really step up. And uh, like you mentioned, like Babe comes back and coaches that second team. And you could just sort of see that this was a guy who just really understood whatever sport he was he was playing and, and just understood it in a way as a player and a coach that that made everybody around him better. Yeah, but Babe's a great character, and then of course he he went on to have success uh, playing college ball after the camps. Um, and you note in the book that that he passed up the opportunity to play professional ball. Did, did you do you know what that was about? Why he yeah had to so go that path? I, yeah, so Babe he had so at San Jose State he had a, a knee injury in his second season, and I think that that sort of set him back a little bit. And it was also you know. Uh, I also think that the tenor of the times, he would have been the first Japanese-American player to play professional football. It would have been, you know, and there was still a lot of violence on the West Coast even after the camps closed. And, you know, he after he left San Jose State, he played at Los Angeles City College when he first got back to the West Coast and they had wire stories written about him all over the country as the, as the best Japanese-American footballer. He's one of the highest scoring players in uh, Juco ball that in the entire country that year. And his coach was like, you, you'll have your pick of colleges. You, you'll be able to go anywhere you want. And he went to San Jose state, which had uh, a long history of sort of welcoming Asian American athletes, especially Japanese American athletes for years uh, at the school. So that's where he decided to play and, and eventually ended up as a AP honorable mention. You know, the thing about the the pro ball that I think about a lot with Babe is I think about what his career would have been like if he hadn't had to go to this camp. You know, what recruiting would have been like for him as 
the star running back at Hollywood High School in LA in if he had been able to play in those 42 and 43 seasons in Los Angeles instead of having to play it at a concentration camp in Wyoming and then having to sort of putter around and figure out what he was going to do with his life. And I have no doubt that in my mind that if he had been able to do a straight a straight through LA and then played at you know USC or UCLA or wherever you know even back then a college like St. Mary's had great football program. You know there are a lot of great options for for players on the West Coast then to play. You know I, I have no doubt that he he would have if he had chose to be would have been the first Japanese American player to play professional football because it didn't happen very long after him. Wally Yanamini played for the 49ers uh, by the end of the 40s and the early 50s. So for Babe, and, and Babe and Wally were contemporaries, you know, they knew each other. And I, I think that there was, I, I know that they were they were friendly and there was some stuff that I couldn't exactly pin down about their relationship to feel factually accurate putting it in the book. But I know that, you know, there, there was one story about them bowling together that George Yoshinaga actually told later in life that you could just sort of see the competitive spirit that drives all athletes, no matter what the game is. So whether right. it's, you know, you think about that, you know, think about Michael Jordan, you know, just playing various dice games and yeah, like or, just or being ping pong, ping pong or whatever, yeah, you know, right. whatever. So you see athletes that are at the top. They're just going to be like, okay, I'm going to be competitive in, you know, I'm a great football player, a great baseball player, but I'm also going to try to, beat this guy just in a friendly bowling game yeah and the other thing too is you know playing playing professional football in the night late 1940s is is it isn't like today i mean you're making right. pe- peanuts you know there got a lot of guys there are a lot of guys who passed up the opportunity to pursue other professions you know i think right right like gerald ford for example said you know i'm oh, gonna yeah. go i'm gonna go to law school like there's more right. money in being an attorney yeah. than there is in a football player and i'm and i'll still be able to walk after so right um, and, i mean even look at you know pro baseball players through the 50s and 60s a lot of them had second jobs in the right. off season just being like accountants or painting houses right exactly so um so of course after that that second season was the final football season in the camp um the camps closed after that what was it like for people who lived in the camp to camp or camps to to reassimilate uh, into you know regular American society after that? Yeah, everybody was a little bit different, you know, because there are the what people faced when they first left obviously predicated a little bit about what life was going to be like when they came back. So, for people, you know, Babe's parents owned a, a boarding house in Hollywood. And they had a neighbor who watched over the boarding house for them for the years that they were in camp. Whereas George's family, they had to sell their strawberry farm. They sold it for pennies on the dollar. And if you look at where it is today, it's, you know, it's Silicon Valley. You know, they pulled, they paid, you know, it's however many millions of dollars an acre now, and they sold it in total for about $10,000 in today's dollars. So you had this economic issue that when everybody was returned to the West Coast, everybody was dealing with something a little bit different. And just because they went to camps for these years didn't remove the the racism that sent them there to begin with. So even though the war was over, it didn't mean that people's thoughts about Japanese Americans, just as Japanese Americans, not as quote, you know, that the Axis enemy, none of none of that changed. So you still had the racism of the times that meant that 
you know, people still had to deal with the BS that came with being a minority through those decades and still continues to this day. You know, I didn't write about it as much in the book, but I, I was able to write a couple stories for the New York Times uh, after the World War II, we know, beyond the World War II, we know series that came out this summer. And I talked a little bit about what life was like in LA after the war. And, you know, a lot of folks moved from barracks into trailer camps that were federally run trailer camps because they had nowhere else to go. People at Heart Mountain, they had to basically force people onto the trains, the last train that was leaving that November, because people had, they had no money, they had no home to go to. So they get off the train in Los Angeles and they go right back into a, 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 federal, a federally run trailer park that had been set up on the outskirts of LA County or next to munitions factories and all kinds of things that, you know, there were some folks that said their lives were better in camp than they were after camp because of, of at least in camp, they had, they had food, they had shelter and, you know, they just sort of got dropped at a train station in LA and said, you know, figure it out. Yeah. Um, you're talking it, towards the end of the book, you, um, you talk a, a little about how, you know, later in life, uh, Horse, of course, one of the main characters of the book was um, extremely was an extremely patriotic American. Um, and I, I, you know, obviously we can't make generalizations and I'm sure feelings varied among different Nikkei. But um, what was your sense about how, you know, Japanese Americans look back on on the camps many years later? Yeah, that's a really you know, and you hit the nail on the head where it's like everyone's experience in the camp was different in the same way that, you know, you or I would experience everything a little bit differently. So someone like Horse, I think his politics, and I think his children would say this too, his his politics sort of hardened and became more conservative later in life to the point where in the 80s when Japanese American, the idea of Japanese American reparations came about, he said, oh, we, sh we shouldn't get those. We, we don't need that. Uh, and there are a lot of people in the Japanese-American community because at, at that point, Babe became, after the war, Babe became a, a newspaper columnist for a series horse. of Japanese. Ja yeah. Oh, sorry. Horse. It's okay. Yeah. 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 Horse. Sorry. No, I, know, yeah. I, know, I know what you meant. Yeah. I just wanted to, yeah, yeah. For, our for our listeners, Horse. Yeah. No, no. Yeah. So Horse becomes basically the, the most widely read Nisei uh, newspaper columnist in the country. So he has this really big audience. And he uses that mouthpiece in a lot of ways. And one of them is to get in these sort of major and public fights about the fight for reparations that uh, some of the younger generations really, you know, he, he's viewed later in life as um, uh, pariah is way too strong of a word, but the, the more politicized younger generations in the 70s and 80s really uh, grew to sort of loathe loath horse and for his views on on reparations and for you know saying that camp life wasn't that bad and and i say that in the book where horse you know horse grew up on a strawberry farm in la he was or in, in, in mountain view he was always going to be a strawberry farmer his dad was a strawberry farmer his brothers were strawberry farmers he viewed camp after camp he moved to la and becomes this you know famous newspaper columnist and he says, if my life, if I hadn't been sent to camp, I would have been a strawberry farmer. I would have been a tenant farmer for my entire life. Or, you know, I would have had these small little plots of land that 
I, every couple of years because strawberry farms, you have to move every few years because the ground gets sucked of nutrients. So he would have spent his life sort of bouncing around. Uh, so I think he viewed his years in camp a little bit differently than some other folks. Whereas you look at somebody like Maso Gamachi, who had wanted to become an accountant. He, he had, he had, he was, he had a great brain and he would, you know, until the day he died, he did his taxes by hand without a calculator because he just loved numbers. And he was, he grew really bitter and really hardened by camp and thought that his years in camp took that ability away from him to become this accountant. And, you know, he never became an accountant and he, he worked in this market. And I think that, you know, like you said, everybody's experience was a little bit different, but I compare those two because they played on a football team together and they lived in Wyoming together at the same time, but they came from two different places. And then later on, they had two completely different views of what camp life was like and what it had done to them personally. Right. Um, all right. One final question. I'll get you out of, and I'll get you out of here. Thank you again so much for your time, Brad. Yeah, of course. Um, once again, the name of Brad's book is The Eagles of Heart Mountain, a true story of football, incarceration and resistance in World War II America. Um, so, Brad, my final question, which I like to ask all of my guests, what is your all time favorite sports book? Ooh, let me look at my shelf real quick to make sure. Yeah. I don't something. <laughs> uh, I, it feels lame to say it because it's compared to, like to this book, but it's probably Friday Night Lights. I mean, it's, it's, it's one of those things where it's like, it was the first thing that came to mind when I thought about it. So, but I'm actually reading a really great book right now that, um, is it, it's called champions day and mm -hmm. it takes, and it's by James Carter and it sort of tracks the history of Shanghai with the horse racing industry in Shanghai. And it's, it's, you know, I actually, Dr. Carter was a history professor at the school I went to. I went to St. Joe's in Philly. And I saw this book come up and I'm reading it right now. And it's this really fascinating history that sort of talks about, you know, race and urban development in Shanghai and what life was like there at the beginning of the 20th century. But it also weaves in this history of, of horse racing in, uh, in China that I was obviously, it's one of the subjects that you don't sort of reach out for books on, uh, but I'm so glad that I did. So that's what I'm reading right now. And uh, I highly recommend it for anyone else who's uh, into books that sort of weave that history and sports narrative like mine did. Yeah, I'll have to check that out. And that's, you know, it's the the best sports books are always about a lot more than sports, right? I mean, that's, and that's, that's yeah, like exactly. your book is about in Friday Night Lights. And, and it sounds like this, this Shanghai book as well. So I'll check it out. All right, Brad, thank you so much again for coming on the podcast. Um, I really enjoyed chatting about the book and, and the book is great. Everybody, you know, if you're a fan of history, uh, football, just a good underdog story, definitely check it out. Great. Thanks so much, Paul. All right. Thank you.